Hey, Hook, how's it going, man? Good. How you doing, man? Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, we're so appreciative of you spending time with us today. This is Jen, my co-host here in London. Lovely to meet you, Hook. And um, I'm just sorry, I'm reading your top there. Never settle for average. I like him. So, Herc, how did it, you know, I'm quite familiar with the story, but just for the sake of the viewers then, how did it all begin for you? Where did you grow up? What was it like for you as a kid? Um, Well, I grew up with my mother and my grandparents. My mom, she had me at 14, so she was pretty young when she got pregnant. And back in the 70s, that was pretty taboo. And in the neighborhood I grew up, it was a lot of uh, retired military families. So a lot of people, um, you know, didn't really talk about this kind of stuff. And I, to this day, have never heard my mom out of her mouth mention who my dad is. But I've heard through the grapevine, through other people, who this other family is. But um, it was just a very taboo thing. But I had a lot of love in the house. My grandmother instilled a lot of family values. My grandfather was retired Air Force. So I had a lot of that just structure in the house. Um, was a straight A student, played, uh, you know, did all the typical stuff, um, played a little soccer, BMX, skateboarding, um, did really well in school. And um, I didn't really get into any trouble until, until my teens, my mid-teens, I mean, I had a stepdad growing up. My mom got married at 18. I didn't really have a, a really good relationship with him. I mean, he was there, but he wasn't really fatherly. So I was always kind of like trying to find my identity. So I did a lot of things to try to create my um, myself and find out who I was as a person. And that's why I did a lot of the, the outdoor stuff, sports and break dancing and just all the outdoor activities I participated in my little peer groups. But um, I lived on a military base for quite a while. And uh, like I said, I didn't get in any trouble until my mom got a divorce. I moved off the military base and then um, moved into my old neighborhood where I originally grew up at, but on the other side of town, which was pretty, pretty grimy. It was a lot of street stuff going on. Crack era had just kind of took place in the 80s, like mid to late 80s. Um, I was still going to school, doing my thing. And then I kind of got involved in, in, in the drug game. Cause I wanted to, uh, you know, I seen the attention, the guys at school had that were drug dealers, the guys on my street, I wanted to emulate them. I was looking for like, a, once again, my identity and that, 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 um, that fit in where I fit in and, and, and as far as in my culture. And so by becoming a hustler, a drug dealer, a crack dealer at 15, I started making money. I was kind of finding my way into that little peer group and I ended up getting caught up. So I caught a case for selling crack at 15, did time in juvenile hall and the boys ranch, um, did like eight, eight, eight months there, got out, ended up moving to Orange County, which was totally different than Sacramento and um, kind of got exposed to the suburb, suburban life, rich kids with, um, Boats in their backyard, everybody's family was two-parent households, just very night and day. So that was kind of a culture shock. Um, graduated after that, two years later, went back to Sacramento, got into a bunch of shit again, and ended up catching a home invasion case um, with some guys. Did two years, eight months for that. Got out. Um, 
went back to LA, got involved in adult entertainment industry for a little while, and um, just kind of was still wandering. I mean, from 18 to 21, I was locked up, so I never really got a chance to grow up. So um, I was just trying stuff, and I, you know, got into the adult entertainment industry, got into selling a lot of drugs, um, got into a lot of gangster stuff still because I hadn't really reformed myself when I was in the um, when I was in CYA for that time. And for those who don't know, CYA is California Youth Authority. It's like gladiator school. So from 18 to 21, I was around a lot of guys who pretty much were uh, just career criminals, guys who had already been pretty much institutionalized. I mean, it's a lot of young people. And in CYA, you basically could be there from the time you're 14 to 25. So it was like a mini, it was like mini prison. And uh, anyways, I, um, while I was in there, I didn't really have the tools to to mature because I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have anybody really older than me tell me what to do. So when I did get out, I got right back into you know different things that weren't really on the up and up. Ended up catching the bank robbery, um, roughly six seven years later, involved with some people in the adult entertainment industry. And, um, Herc, you know. can I just pause you one second? Um, I just got a message from Ash, the producer. He's asked if you could just sit a little closer to the screen. There we go. That's better. Thank you. Yeah. Please, please get into the details of the bank robbery. Then what went down? Yeah. So, um, I'm working in the adult entertainment industry and one of the guys suggests that, um, you know, we can do a bank robbery. He kind of knew I was already kind of a street guy to begin with. So he's like, hey, man, you know, um, this might be something you might be interested in. And I knew I shouldn't have entertained it, but I was already making so many choices that were bad choices that it was easy to entertain another one. So I always tell people it wasn't the bank robbery that got me locked up. It was the multitude of choices leading up to the bank robbery. I was already kind of preconditioned to entertain something like that because somebody told me today a bank robbery, I tell them to get the hell out of my face. But at the time, when I'm, you know, I was young, I already had that kind of like gangster mentality, like I could still get out there and make it happen. So I got involved with these guys, plant, you know, they planned out a bank robbery. And there were a couple signs leading up to the bank robbery that told me that this wasn't a good idea. The first one was my co-defendants during the planning stages of the bank robbery. I remember one time we were actually looking at the bank and they, they got to arguing over chocolate. One of the guys wanted to pull over to a gas station to get a chocolate bar. The other guy's like, man, we're not going to get any chocolate because we're in the area. We don't want to be seen on camera. And these guys were arguing, almost like reservoir dogs. I'm sitting in the back seat, and I can't believe these dudes, man. I'm like, these guys are arguing over a damn chocolate bar. So that kind of had me thinking, like, man, maybe this is not a good idea. But instead of pulling out, I, I just kind of, I don't know, I, I just let it kind of play over. And, um, you know, just let the plans just take place. And then the morning of the bank robbery, um, I was waiting for these guys to pull up to my house. And my mom calls me like early, like seven in the morning. And she never calls me that early. She's like, what are you doing? And um, I'm sitting there and I have this outfit on, you know, ready to go rob the bank, like a military outfit on, you know, uh, with, with a jumpsuit on, with my clothes underneath. And I'm telling her, that I'm watching the news. And she's asked me that I watched the bachelor last night. This is the first season of the bachelor. And I'm like, yeah, I've seen it, blah, blah, blah. 
And then when she hung up the phone, I'm sitting there like, man, something doesn't seem right. And so that was a sign from the universe to not do this bank robbery. It wasn't like I was on drugs or I needed the money. I was broke. I wasn't going to be homeless. None of that. You know, I, I wasn't like one of those destitute people. But like I said, my mind wasn't in the right place mentally to really recognize the signs. And so they pulled up. We went to the, you know, got on the, got in the car, rode to the bank. It's probably 45 minute, maybe an hour drive there in traffic. And it was raining. It was just, it was cold. It was an ugly morning. And um, I remember pulling up to the bank. And it was one of those banks that have, it, it, these banks have a, you could enter on one side and drive around and leave on the other side. So they pull up to the side of the bank. And um, we're sitting there for a couple seconds. And I'm thinking like, you know, somebody can get out the car, you know, because one driver and, and me and another guy in front. And so I just, pulled my mask down, jump out the back of the, the Ford Escort, there's a four-door, and I, I went inside the bank, and the guy followed me in the bank and, um, you know, told everybody, get down, and um, basically it was a hostile takeover. And I'm looking at the clock, and, you know, my heart's beating through my chest. Um, the other co-defendant jumped over the counter. Um, he's, you know, screaming to get the money, where the money at. He hit somebody upside the head with a gun. Um it's just, it's just, it's just mayhem in there, man. It's like everything's in slow motion. And I'm looking around. I'm like, man, this is crazy. You know, it's, it's the, the adrenaline is, is going like you're, you're, it feels like you're, like you're jumping. I guess I probably the same feeling as jumping out of an airplane. And I look out the corner of my eye and I see a sheriff in a rain suit with a shotgun in the distance. So they're already in the area. And so I'm like, man, you know, we got to hurry up. And I'm telling him to hurry up, hurry up. And so at this point, I'm like, dude, come on, let's go. And I run outside, jump in the car, wait for him. He comes out a couple seconds later. We pull out the bank. And as we pull out, a cop gets behind us. And I don't know if it was timing or he just happened to be behind us. And he bumps us. And we have a high-speed chase. And so, you know, high-speed chase, we, we, we take off down the street. He has the sirens on. We pull into a almost like a parking lot. He gets out of his car, draws down on us, and I'm like, this is crazy, man. It hasn't even been a minute, and we're already, you know, about to get arrested. And so the driver looks at him, and he, he's like, he punches it. He punches it. The cop points a gun, and he, we drive past him. We pull into another parking area where we have the, the another secondary in car, a linking navigator. So we jump in the navigator, strip out. And lead a clothes in the in the getaway car, and then we're in a navigator. But there's cops everywhere at this point, and so it's an area where you know early in the morning there's no reason for anybody to be there. So as we pull out, there's SWAT, there's detectives. They see three black guys pulling out in the traffic in a navigator, and boom, and boom, they're on us. And so high speed chase. Um, we're on the freeway. It's raining. There's probably, I don't know, 20, 30 cops, helicopters. It's, it's, we're just driving, you know. There's really no escape. It's just a matter of time. It's like one of those bad movies you see late night on TV, you know. You can't get away. And they eventually threw a spike strip on the freeway. The spike strip, we, we roll over that, pops all the tires. We keep going for some time until we're on rims, sliding around in this navigator. He stops the car, and as soon as he stops the car, I jump out. I jump out the car jump over the center divider on the freeway, run across a bunch of traffic. I'm looking for a place to hide. 
apparently they are, they have released a canine. The canine was in the car, and um, I didn't see that. But I'm running up the embankment, and I'm looking for somewhere to hide. There's nowhere to hide, and I end up getting arrested on the beach boardwalk. And as they're putting the cuffs on me, I'm looking out at the ocean, and I'm seeing the waves, and I'm looking like, damn, man, this is the last time I'm going to see the ocean for a long time. And, you know, I, I, there's eight cops there. I'm on the ground. They arrest me. And that's it. And that's when I had an epiphany, man, that, you know what, this is it, man. My, my life's got to change. Literally, the, when they put the cuffs on me, I um, my mind snapped. You know, I wish it could have snapped before, but it snapped. And that was like game over. And so um, that started my journey on finding out how who I was as a person and how I could recreate myself. Go for it, Jen. I was just trying to get through that bank scene without visualising a very, very bad movie. I mean, at what point were you fearless in all of this? Like, it, it sounds absolutely horrific. Um, it, it was, I mean, you know, the, the <laughs> I tell people, man, there's nothing, there's nothing glamorous about robbing a bank. And, you know, I don't brag about it. I always try to make it on my channel that, it was a bad life lesson. I wish I could have learned it beforehand, but I tried to figure out like, what was the mindset for me to even entertain that? I mean, there was a lot of things I did leading up to that, that weren't the best as far as actions. Therefore my mind was kind of geared towards that. And so I tried to reverse and re reconstruct all that. Whenever I try to share my experience to let people know that we have other options. There's signs, there's different things that tell you you're doing something wrong because there's nothing that's telling you to do something right when you're robbing a bank, when you're telling people to get on the ground and you're doing something that's a hostile takeover like that. And um, yeah, it was just, you know, I, I, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, when people it's like, you know, the way I talk and to carry myself, they're like, oh man, you know, you're a square or this and that. I'm like, dude, I've done everything gangster in the book. And it's not like it's a badge of honor. I'm not acting like I'm a tough guy because I've done these different things, but um, I lived it. So when I talk to people, I talk from experience as far as being involved in something at the highest level. I'm lucky to be alive. I mean, they could have shot us. I could have, you know, somebody could have got shot. I mean, both my co-defendants are dead. One of them got out of prison. The driver, he, he, he did the least amount of time. He did roughly six years. He got out. He got lupus. He died within a year and a half, two years after getting out. The, my other co-defendant that jumped over the counter and um, was involved with me in the bank, he went crazy in prison. He actually, he stopped showering. He felt so guilty for having told when we first got arrested that he tried to go to trial. They used it against him. He got 15 years. He got out of prison. He um, was living on Skid Row in Los Angeles. And apparently when they were doing a sweep, the LAPD, they said he reached for a gun and um, they shot him. He got shot and killed. He got shot five times. Wow. So he's dead. Herc, what got your adrenaline spike higher? Was it going into the bank or was it the police chase, the high-speed police chase? Uh, probably going into the bank because when you decide to pull out a gun in front of a, a group of people who have no idea, I mean, dude, that's, that's, that's like... Um, that's somebody who's like outside their mind. You know, it's almost like an out of body experience. And I've had one of those meditating and it's probably the same thing because you actually leave your body when you go into a place and you try to look around to see everything going on. 
to hostilely make people do what you want to do. And you have a, we have a, you know, you have a bank security guard with a gun. You have people over here. You got people over there. I mean, that's a crazy situation, man. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing crazier to experience that. And, um, you know, like I said, I'm lucky that I was able to go through that and to come out the other side, not, you know, in worse condition than um, a lot of people. Yeah. And how would you say it was arriving at that time at the police station? Sorry, I've got <clears throat> um, Well, you know, the police actually were laughing about it because they said, oh, we gave them a, some excitement for the day because usually there's nothing going on up in this Ventura County where we got arrested. So for them, it's a game. And that's when I realized, you know, it's a cat and mouse game. I mean, for them, it gave them something to do. They got the call. It was a big rush for them. And, um, you know, it made the news and, oh, you guys are the bank robbers, blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, it's short-lived. I mean, we're, we're doing time. I mean, you're not getting out. Um, and it, it, it's, it's um, I guess it's a, a false sense of heroic uh, action. You know, you think you're doing something that's going to make you something. And for the amount of money you're getting, it, it's not even worth it. You know, once I got to the feds, and I seen what kind of money people were making. It was almost embarrassing. But at the same time, I was fortunate because I didn't go in there with some of the time some of these other people had. I mean, some people, you know, they, they said 10 years was short timing. You have guys in there doing 30 years plea deals, you know, 20 years on a RICO, you know, guys who are fighting life sentences plus 100 years. I mean, it's insane. When you really start seeing what kind of time people are doing in the feds, it's a major wake up call. Before the feds hurt, what were the county jail conditions like when you first went in? Oh, county 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 jail. I mean, San Bernardino is horrible, bro. It's 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 gangs, it's um politics. You're dealing with the lowest of the low. A lot of these people, where I was living a pretty good life. I lived in a nice area in L.A. close to um, Beverly Hills. You know, very nice condo. Um, when you get to jail, you see the conditions and you see. For a lot of people, they got their homeboys there. You know, these are guys they, you know, kicked the wood on the street. It's like, to them, this is normal. Jail in the county was never normal for me. I never could relate to these people. And I didn't go to prison or jail having any friends inside. I never knew one person from the street that I knew in prison. So for me, it was all foreign. And once I really started looking at my surroundings, I knew that I was different. And I, I, you know, I wasn't trying to be bougie or act like I was better, but I knew that this was not me. And these people, you know, this was normal to them. You know, blacks over here use this shower. Mexicans use this shower. Whites use this sink. You sit at this table. You don't talk to this guy. It's just, and it's very ignorant. I mean, in California, the politics and the racism, it'll get you killed, man, talking to a white guy. White guy giving you a, a top ramen. He might get stabbed, you know, a guy, you know, passing food to you. Somebody sees it. There's so many little things from people who are just very, very mind small. They don't see because they've never they've never really interacted outside of this. So it wasn't normal for me because I grew up in a very diverse environment, military kids. I've had all kind of friends from different nationalities and I was pretty cultured. But a lot of these people. They, they didn't know how to communicate outside of their, their small circles.
When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed and we start our day with Koro Snacks. Koro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to their customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. doesn't get healthier than this because all those other snacks have refined sugars, colours, preservatives and additives. Koros snacks have none of that. Oh, I can't wait. So I'm going to go for the bio energy ball today. Ooh, Salty pistachio. I've got a little uh, chocolate bar here, I think. Oh, the coconut chocolate bar. Mmm. Oh, that's good. Want to try it? Ooh. <laughs> so what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Coro avoids using sulfur, refined sugars, preservatives, colours and other additives. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. So were they quite intimidated by you, being that you're quite big? Well, not knowing anyone either. My size played a factor in, in me not getting tested as if I was a littler guy because the way I articulated myself, the way I carried myself, I was pretty athletic. I could dunk a basketball. I mean, I could bench probably at the time 315. You know, I was in great shape and two, about 235. So it wasn't like, you know, anybody would try to test me one on one, but I had guys. You know, ask me, what are you in here for? Credit card? You know, I said, nah, oh, what you, you know, I'm bank robbery. Oh, use the note, huh? I'm like, nah, man, I used a gun. And that changed their perception because had I said I was in there for white collar, credit card, they might have been pressing me. Dudes might have tried to test me to think I'm soft, you know. I've seen smaller guys get pressed, get tested. Um, and um, a lot of times people, based on your crime, will determine how they interact with you. You know, and, and if you are more of a guy who was like, okay, this guy was a bank robber or assault and bat, I mean, they're like, oh, this guy's not a weakling. But if you're if you're considered a weak person in prison, you will be taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. Great. What was the worst violence you saw? Um, I, I seen a guy get stabbed in uh, with a chicken bone, man. I seen a guy basically bleeding out, and um, this was when I was in Lompoc, USP. And um, it was during um, cell count and four o'clock count. And this guy, I walked by him. I, you know, I didn't see the incident took place. I see a guy, I just seen the guy laying there. And basically, you got to walk past him. You can't stop and help. You know, you can't call the COs. I mean, you're at that point, you're either considered a snitch, you're accessory, and now you're somehow indirectly under investigation for helping a person. So it's sad because in prison, there's situations where you don't know what that situation involved, but you can't get involved. I mean, I've seen a guy get stomped out in the kitchen by three, two dudes and everybody just kept eating. This guy, I mean, stomped, he just kicked him under the table. He couldn't move. You know, I don't know what he did, but this guy, he, he must've did something pretty bad because they said he had five lives plus a hundred years. So whatever he did with that amount of time still, allowed somebody to stomp him out and you know you don't ever you don't look you don't make a movement because now you're alerting the police 
if you make it seem like you've seen something, you're dry snitching. That can get you stabbed. So there's a lot of things. USP Long Park um, it, it was one of the oldest prisons, but it ain't no joke. You don't, you know, I've seen guys, um, you know, knife fight over the TV. Somebody changes the TV. Another guy told, told him to turn it back. And then I, I see a guy say he just go get his knife, you know, over a TV channel. So it's very serious, man. And the least, the less you know, the better. You know, I never bragged about, oh, I was about the business, you know, volunteering. Man, if you volunteer in prison, you're going to most likely get killed or be somewhere where you're never going to see the light of day. You're not, these tough guys who talk all this shit, you're not on mainline. You're not in a dorm. You're not, you're not socializing. You're in a lockdown. Cause I know guys who were in lockdown and that's how you get out. And so you're not, you're not doing recreation with everybody else. The best thing to do when you're in these places is to act like you hear the least amount as possible. You don't try to, when you see something, you go the opposite direction and you try to mind your business. So when I seen things, people bleeding out, I seen a guy, um, you know, laying, laying he, a guy was trying to avoid a debt and he kept going back and forth to work, not going to, to the chow hall thinking he could avoid these guys. They caught him coming from work. They just waited for him. And man, this guy, I don't know if he lived or not, but um, I, I know that when I seen him on the ground, I'll hurry up and went and took a shower. So I, cause I knew it was a lockdown, but um, I've seen a couple people just laid out. I don't know if they survived or not, but um, you know, you just act like you don't see it and keep walking. And how long were you in County for? Um, well, County, I was in County probably eight months. And then I got transferred to USP Lompoc and Lompoc is where I seen, you know, the, the main violence because, you know, you got people in there doing a lot of time and the County is very barbaric, low frequency, just a lot of guys in there. Cause there's state guys in there too. A lot of guys are drug addicts. A lot of guys are just gang members. They're not really you know, crim there's different levels of criminals. There's guys who just commit crimes, and I'm not trying to say one is better than the other. And you got guys who are money guys, guys who are maybe embezzling, laundering money, real estate fraud, um, big time cartel, drug dealers. So it's a different caliber. Once you once I got to the pen, and you see people are more or less acclimating to a place being their home, it's treated differently, and and the value system is different. Mm. So how are the gangs structured out there? Just to explain for the people here in England, because in England, you know, we don't have these racial prison gangs like the, the neo-Nazi Aryan Brotherhood, the Mau Mau, whatever, for the blacks. How is it structured in California, in state and feds? Uh, California, the state, is, is there's a lot of gangs. I mean, in the state you have, the biggest is, the, the, the Hispanics have the biggest gangs, Mexicans. You have North Daniels, Serenos, which is North Daniels up north. You have Serrano, Southsiders down down south. And then you have um, the Paisas, which are um, Mexicans who have come across the border, but they're not really tied into any of the, 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 the gangs in California State. They got their own clique. That's the biggest. Those are the, probably the biggest demographics. Then you have Crips and Bloods, and then you have the, the different Crips and Blood sets. You have L.A. Crips. Then you have L.A. different sets inside L.A. Then you have San Diego, then you have Northern California, then you have like in state, you have BGF, you have um, different other black gangs within there. And so there's so many different gangs in the state. Then you have, um, um, you, you, you have what you call um, skinheads, then you have, which are white, then you have guys who are just uh, Peckerwoods, you know, white guys in prison. So then you have those different separations 
And then you get to the feds and you have a mixture of all these different gangs, um, the Texas syndicate, um, the Pisces, all these different gangs. And then it's divided by, then you have states, Florida boys, DC boys. Um, you have guys from like the Texas. I mean, so there's all different sects. So everybody clicks up. Then you have New York, you know, guys from New York, you have Latin Kings and everybody has their clicks. Um, you you got to know where to sit. You know, it, it's hard to, you know, you're not really supposed to cross over and mingle with different people. I mean, um, I was fortunate because I did law work for people. I helped people type up briefs and, and different things. And I could, you know, I was, I was educated so I could help people read and look up stuff. So I was able to talk to guys from like Chicago, maybe a, a guy who's a, a gangster disciple or a guy from Brooklyn, you know, would help me with the law. And I was able to talk to different people. Um, I talk, you know, white guy over here who's, um, who's maybe 60 something years old, but he's a retired military and he would tell me stuff. So I mingled in different circles and I was able to, and I never really, you know, I was at a neutral table. I never took on any gang affiliation. So that was one of the benefits, but it's totally divided. I mean, there could be some a riot going on between the blacks, but it might only be blacks from like a particular area and the other black groups won't get involved. So it'd be, it could be black um, Southsiders and say guys from DC, or it could be, um, you could have, you, you might have a, a situation where you got Compton Crips and 60s not getting along, or you might have guys from the Bay, you know, um, not getting along with a certain group of guys from another area. So it's, it's totally divided. I mean, the you know, Mexicans from up north, they don't get, you know, they might have a treaty with guys from down south, but then, you know, the beasts are really separate. So there's all type of different situations politically you got to know how to navigate because if you don't pay attention, you could get caught in the middle of something and not even know it. Exactly. And you're talking about the gangs, but what about the drugs in either prison from the county to the Fed? How did they differ? Uh, county, county is pretty low ball. But once you get to the feds, I mean, you got guys, you know, there was guys in Lompoc. Um, I was talking with a friend of mine. I mean, he was doing a lot of time. He, he ended up, he had a 30 year sentence, but um, I want to say he ended up getting out early. So he did damn near 20, but um, I stayed out of the mix, but I know there was a lot of heroin. There was guys in there making, you know, there was guys in there doing heroin deals, making, you know, anywhere from, you know, 20,000 or maybe 40, 50,000 a month, you know, working different deals through other connections on the street, through the guards. I mean, they're, 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 in Lompoc at that time, they called the guards the cowboys and the warden was the leader. So they literally, they were a gang. I mean, they would come in there. The warden walked through the, through the halls with his guard. I mean, these guys were goons. I mean, they walked through there like Suge Knight, like they were ready to smash you. So if you got out of pocket, you know, um, you know, did something, you know, that wasn't, um, above board. I mean, these guys literally were shaking down people. So there was a lot going on there as far as drugs. And, you know, I, I heard there was a lot of heroin being moved around. And that's the big, that's the big drug in prison, state and feds. I mean, people are looking for something to kind of cope with the time. So a lot of these guys that are shot collars, big wigs, they're on, they're on, they're on drugs, they're on heroin. And that helps them cope with that time. I mean, and heroin debts, is some of the worst because guys getting a whole, you know, four or five thousand men, you owe somebody three or four thousand dollars, five thousand, that's your life. So you got guys, you know, having money, try to, you know, try to have their parents send money from home or they're checking in to try to avoid a debt. 
And you can never really avoid a debt or get rid of it unless you pay it. I mean, you go to another institution, somebody has sent a word and you land, you get to that other institution and somebody else picks up that same debt. So the drugs, heroin is one of the biggest in prison. And I try to stay as far away from that as possible. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just I just kept my nose clean. Got a question from one of the viewers, Seagull Guitarist. Thank you. Did people get treated differently for having more or less time in terms of respect? And if so, how? Um, if you were doing 10 years, like I had, I had um, 120 months. Guys used to tell me, he said, man, watch out talking to those guys with life. He said, hey, man, that guy got life because you never know what these guys' are intentions are. It's a lot of crafty psychological shit going on in prison. You don't know if that guy's preying on you that maybe he's a sexual predator. He's trying to test you. You don't know if he's, you know, a weirdo because he's got all this time. So generally speaking, if you were doing 10 years or less, you didn't hang out with a lifer. Lifers kind of have their own thing because they had nothing to lose. I mean, if you're doing life, if you stab somebody, who cares? I'm already doing life. So his value of his time is different than a guy who has an outdate. So yeah, you are treated differently. Um, I've seen guys there, um, you know, most of the guys who were doing a lot of time, they were always trying to work on something legally to get out, whether it's a pardon, whether it was trying to do an appeal. So they were a lot, especially guys from the East coast, they were in a law library a lot. Cause a lot of guys from the East coast who were there for drugs and other high powered crimes, they were college educated more so than the West coast. So I've seen a lot of those guys in a law library, but um, it, you know, once you got out of a USP to a medium, you, you know, it was a different mentality because you see more people going home. At a USP, it's very rare that you see anybody parole from a USP. You never seen anybody go home, you know. Um, and if a person was going home, he never told anybody because he didn't want nobody to know that he was getting out. You don't want to tell a guy who's doing, you know. Um, you know, uh, 50 years that you're going home because it, it kills his dream of hope. So typically people, um, you know, when they got out, they just one day they left. You never knew they got out. But at a medium, you've seen people getting out more often. So you had a drug program. You had guys who were there on violation. And so it was a different vibe. It wasn't as serious. And um, you had a different mentality. But, yeah, you didn't have a lot of mixing of guys doing the, the uh, you know serious time with guys who were short timing and guys who were short timing were there kind of hanging out a lot of them they were playing cards gambling um watching tv and so it was rare to really see them studying like i was one of the few guys who stayed in a law library with the amount of time i had because i was trying to educate myself i, I was on a journey to try to find my way out so it was, it, it was definitely a, a, a different mentality between guys doing a lot of time and guys doing 10 years or less I can actually see a question myself here from Perry Pet Tool. Did you ever have to defend yourself or stand, stand your ground? Um, yeah, I mean, I had a situation with some guys who were trying to create, um, like, a, you know, start up a rumor because the guys were jealous of the way I carried myself because I had, I had a group of guys, white, Mexican, um, biracial, Korean, we all studied together, ate together, did a lot of things together. And I, I, I made money doing legal work, helping people. So a lot of guys were jealous of that. And I had a situation where a couple of guys were trying to 
um, lure me into a TV room so they could jump me. But I always told a guy, if you want, if you want to handle a situation, let's come in and sell one-on-one. So I had no problem, you know, one-on-one getting into a small and confined environment and handling my business. And I had a situation like that once. And on another situation, I had to slap a guy one time. But other than that, I never really allowed myself to get put in a situation where I could get jumped or be outnumbered. And I had enough good people around me because I helped so many people that if I, if, if my life would have ever been in danger, I had people that would have my back in that sense. Herc, were you able to maintain a fitness and nutrition regime? I imagine the food is probably pretty scarce. Oh, the food was horrible, man. It was horrible. I mean, because I didn't know the value of food, I mean, I ate very healthy on the street. Um, I, I worked out, kind of bodybuilded when I was on the street. When I got to prison, the, the biggest thing was nutrition. So I used to pay guys to steal oatmeal out the kitchen, powdered milk, um, chicken, um, steak when they had it. And I would try to eat as far as in the, in the, in the unit as much as possible paying guys stamps to steal me food because I tried to avoid a lot of the, the top ramen and a lot of the, the, the horrible food in the kitchen. So that was the hardest part was the nutrition, but I tried to stay on top of it as much as possible. And I worked out every day, every day I worked out for two hours a day. I would get up. The first thing I did is eat my little oatmeal, peanut butter and uh, powdered milk. And then I would go to the yard and I would um, run a mile, do like a jog for a mile. And I would work out for another hour. So I made sure I was in tip-top shape because I knew there were a lot of wolves. And I know if you are presumed of being weak and, and, and you, you're volatile, people will test you. So I always like worked out and sometimes I'd work out with my shirt off and let people know that, you know, this wasn't, it wasn't going to be an easy fight. And a lot of guys recognize that. So I was able to keep a lot of people off me. We call that peacocking over here. Do you call that there? <laughs> peacocking. Yeah. <laughs> So no, I mean, you said you kept your nose clean in there, you kept your fitness routine. How else did you get through it till the end? Um, I just read a lot of books. I mean, I knew that if I didn't change my life and I didn't, I didn't try to get out of there in the earliest amount of time as possible, that it could compromise my future because I didn't want to have to get into a situation where I did get in a fight with somebody or a serious altercation and I had to stab somebody in defending my life. Then I caught more time. So I relied on networking while I was in prison to position myself so when I got out, I could be in a better position. Because I didn't want to go out and have to have my family take care of me, ask people to help me out. So I developed a family in prison. And a lot of the guys I made friends with, I still aren't, I'm still in contact with. I had my, my white friend who got out. He, he um, you know, we network still. And then I had a friend, my Korean friend, he helped me get a car. My Mexican friend sold me a car. And these are all people I met in prison. And even a, another friend of mine, my uh, black friend of mine, uh, introduced me to somebody where I stayed at their house when I got out of the halfway house. So all my contacts, because I was a good person and as far as in persona, these guys entrusted me and introduced me to people that helped me when I got out. So I relied a lot of, a lot of my contacts and the friendships I made. So I didn't really... I didn't hang out with a lot of people and it made a lot of people mad. A lot of black guys didn't like me because I wasn't hanging out, but I wasn't going to, I didn't want to rehash old stories about other crimes I committed. I wasn't like into just wasting my time with frivolous conversation. 
So I did a lot of reading. And when I did engage in conversation, it was to elevate my conscious. And um, I, I just, I really reprogrammed myself. You know, I meditated and um, that allowed me to almost be invisible in prison. I created like this, this almost uh, force field around myself. So I didn't subject myself to more time or anything that would get me caught up because I had to convince my family when I got out, I wasn't crazy. My family, nobody had been locked up before. You know, my family wasn't the type of people who had a bunch of relatives in and out of prison. So I was an embarrassment coming from a straight A student, somebody with so much potential to do a bank robbery. They're like, what's wrong with me? So um, I had to, I had a lot to prove and nobody came to see me when I was in prison. So I knew that in order for me to redeem myself, I couldn't, I couldn't get into prison and, and fall deeper into the rabbit hole. I was going to ask how your mom thought about it because you were really quite close to her growing up, obviously. Yeah, they were embarrassed. My grandmother, she, she didn't, she, she prayed, you know, she's old, um, Southern woman, very, a lot of hospitality, you know, really strong values. So, you know, she said when I got out, she like prayed for me because she didn't know if I would ever, you know, be back to being that grandkid that I was that she raised, which was very well-behaved, uh, well-mannered, um, you know, disciplined. And, you know, I never, I never cussed them from my grandparents. I never brought any of my criminal activities around the house. You know, I was like living a dual life. You know, I never exposed them to that side of me. So it was like almost like a embarrassment. And, and for them, they didn't understand who that other person was. So, you know, I had a lot to prove when I got out. So, Herc, did prisoners have sexual relations with staff members? You know, um, <laughs> there were a couple of incidents. Um, there was, uh, I, in one of the prisons I was at, um, one of the guys was uh, messing around with one of the female staff members, and her actual, I think, husband worked at the institution. So, eventually, uh, that guy went to the hole and, you know, all shit came down. So they started investigating everybody. But, yeah, there was a couple of guys that were messing around with females at, you know, a couple of institutions I was at. At another institution, a couple of guys were messing with some of the um, staff members in the education department. And, um, you know, they would have little windows. And one of them actually ended up hooking up with the teacher when he got out. And I think he lived with her for a while before, you know, until he got on the seat. So there were a lot of those situations because, they call it, um, you know, prison hot. You know, you got a female who on the street, you know, wouldn't get this type of attention. But when you have, you know, 200 guys, a thousand guys, just, they'll do anything, you know, take your dirty underwear, you know. <laughs> I mean, you feel pretty attractive and you're very vulnerable and that's the most attention. And it's natural. You're a female. These guys are men. These are these guys are, a lot of them were big drug dealers, making a lot of, you know, money. And if a guy was more successful, you're like, wow, you know, it's 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 a lot of intrigue to be involved with a criminal element and on top of it feel wanted sexually and knowing that this guy will ravage you. So um, I did see a lot of that um, going on in different pl places, but it was very low key. You know, I remember coming down one time at USP Lompoc and I caught a CO kissing another guy. I act like I didn't see it. I'm like, oh, shit. You know, I just kept walking. Never said anything to the dude, never said anything to her, just minding my business. But, you know, he was he was handling his business. You know, he was um, he was actually, you know, tonguing her down in the, in the stairwell. 
I mean, who's taking advice out of who in that situation? It's, it's, I think it's a, you know, quid pro quo. I think they're both winning. You know, you got a female who's getting an attention. Maybe the guy, he's getting her to bring in maybe cell phones, maybe some other stuff, handling some business from the street. I mean, and you got these guys are high level intelligence. I mean, even though these guys are criminal, they're very, they read a lot of psychological books, a lot of books on communication, body language. You know, there's, you, you see little behavior things. I mean, there's ways that you peacock to make a woman look at you differently than other inmates. And so there's a lot of that going on. And for these women, I mean, you know, you go home, you're living in these, these towns that are middle of nowhere because these prisons are in the most horrible places you could think of because there's nothing around there. And it's the same townspeople. And you got a guy who's from, say, this a city somewhere, and he's got all these different things about him that's interesting. And for him to be attracted to you, it blows you away. You know, it's, it's, it's like something that makes a woman feel like she's special. And these guys are great at making a woman feel special, especially in that type of situation. Exactly. So before you came on her, we had Chris Hansen to catch a predator. How are predators treated in the California system? Oh, dude, if you're a predator, you're, you're done. If you're, if you're, they don't, if you had anything to do with kids, you are getting punished, especially like, like I tell you right now, the white guys in prison do not play. Bring your paperwork. If you're a predator and you're white, and they find out, dude, I tell you, they handle their business more than the blacks. I just got to be on. They do not play. They will check your paperwork. And if you did something out of pocket, they will they will remove you quickly. Um, Hispanics, you know, similar instance. If, you, if they find out you had anything on your jacket, blacks to some degree handle business too, but not as serious as the white guys in prison. I mean, they have super strict rules. And um, they don't play, but that type of uh, that type of criminal history is not tolerated. And um, if they find out about it um, instantly, that guy's gone. I remember there was a guy, white guy, and um, I didn't know. I had talked to him a couple of times. I didn't know what he was in the feds for, but apparently he had something to do with a you know child porn site or something underage. And I'm telling you, um. When the white guys found out, they were they that was automatic removal. You're done, you know. And um, that's not something taken lightly. And not to say that blacks don't discipline. I've seen guys that were you know um, on the yard and they were acting like they were tough guys, and some paperwork came up. And dude, they they um they they're like wolves, man. They put the beating down. So that's not tolerated at all. As far as if you did anything, they have actual institutions where. Those guys are all on the yard together. Yeah, I can imagine it ends that way, or ways above. So yeah, maybe moving on to St. Lighter, how <laughs> coming out of prison uh, and starting up your massive YouTube channel. I mean, how did you go from obviously being released, redemption with your family, to going onto YouTube? Well, while, while I was in prison, um, on my journey to try to find myself, my spiritual quest, I kind of um, I, I came up with an idea to come up with a uh, with a channel fresh out, and so I wanted to do something to show how people can redeem themselves when they get out of prison, how people can be better. You know, I've seen guys get out and come back, and they're like, "Oh man, 
they violated me because I smoked a little weed. I mean, and these guys were literally scared of being free. And so there was a lot of that mentality where a person becomes institutionalized. They become comfortable with prison to the point where they'll sabotage their freedom to go back and then try to justify it. So I'm like, you know what? I got to do a show that opens up people's minds to something different and showing post-release success. So rather than showing the people who are going back, I try to focus on people who were cha- who have changed their lives. And then I want to also be a mentor to young kids or people in general to show that you have other choices in life. And so when I got out, um, I initially did a, um, while I was in, I saved my money up. I bought video camera before I got out. I started a corporation before I got out. I had all this stuff set up, but it took me a little longer to get it going. And then I found my workout partner, Anthony, while I was at the gym and I told him I had an idea for a show and we just started, you know, we decided to shoot, you know, um, you know, shoot an episode. And I found that a neighbor of mine was a camera guy and um, my, you know, my, my partner put together a website. We, we, we shot our first episode. I believe our first episode was Cali Muscle and that was 10 years ago and it just took off from there. And um, we kind of like just were some of the first people to really start talking about prison but one of the things I kind of stuck with was not glamorizing it. You know, I, I didn't want to, I mean, I don't want to glamorize like somebody getting raped or people stabbing each other. Cause I just think that those things are horrible and there's enough of that in society already. And my whole thing was trying to counter this glorification of prison, especially for a lot of young black men. It's like no big deal. It's like, Hey man, you know, going to do a little time, blah, blah, blah. And it's sad when prison for young people is a rite of passage. You know, I don't think prison should ever be considered normal. It's the most unhumane experience a person can go through. I mean, somebody, you know, bunch of men, people looking at your butthole, you know, no privacy, you know, telling you when you can go to the bathroom, when to get up, when you, it's, it's just psychologically, it's just, it's horrible. So I, I want to show that. And that's what I, you know, that was my goal when I set out to do uh, Fresh Out was to be more of a positive deterrent and also, you know, um, showcase people's experiences. When you, when your videos first started to go viral, how did that feel getting that the feedback from the public and the subscribers are jumping up and all the comments coming in? Um, it was a great feeling, man. I mean, you know, I, I, I never looked at YouTube as like a profession. I kind of did it to, you know, create this platform, hoping to take it to another level, almost like cops, where it was like a mainstream thing and I could interview people and, you know, have these conversations with individuals that can relate to where I've been, but show a different side. Because a lot of times, you know, when you, when you, when you hear people interview, you know, these guys in prison, these professional newscasters, they don't really know because they've never been in prison. Oh, I've read these books. I've, it's not the same. When you go home every day, it's not the same as living with a bunch of barbarians, you know, day in, day out. And having these conversations, you know, talking to people you know that have killed somebody, but haven't, you know, they haven't out- outwardly admitted it. So it's a different experience. So I want to bring that out. But yeah, it was, you know, great. And, um, you know, I always say if I would have, if I would have, if I would glorify it more, my channel would be even bigger. But there's a couple of things that we've stuck to on our channel that is not really in alignment with the narrative, which is promotion of this type of behavior. 
And I, I, you know, I've been to every facet of the system. So I think that, you know, I, I'm trying to show more change than endorse a lifestyle that's become trendy. I mean, look at the rappers now. They think it's, they think it's cool, like going to prison, you know, oh man, hanging out, stabbing people, cell phones. When it's, you know, there's so many other things you could do with your life. And what message would you give to the youths of today who think going to prison is still an impressive, cool thing to do? Um, I would tell them that there's, you know, hanging out and going to school, you know, picking up a trade, going to college, being around people who are career oriented, people who have family values, people who, um, who have dreams and goals. I mean, prison, man, when you think about it and the type of people, you know, a lot of these guys you think that are your friends, aren't your friends. You know, you get in trouble. The first thing they do is looking out for their best interests. Um, you know, think about your family. Think about your kids you're leaving who are now fatherless, who are following now your same steps. It's a repetitive cycle. You know, I, I've never seen guys in there, father, son, brothers, um, you know, father, son, cousins. I mean, it's like, damn, man, this whole family's in prison. I mean, do you, you know, who grows up saying you want to be, you, you want to be in prison, sleeping in a bunk with somebody else being told what to do? So, you know, I tell these kids, man, find yourself a passion, find something you can do that gives you purpose in life, you know, something that gives you value. And whether that's working on cars, whether that's building things, whether that's being, you know, being involved in architecture, engineering, there's so many other things because all of them hustling you do in, on the street that you, you glorify these guys. Oh, he sold 100 kilos. That guy's doing 30 years. You think he wouldn't trade those 100 kilos or millions of dollars for freedom? I've seen guys in there crying, kill, crying. Big hurt, man, 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 I wish I could go home, man. Oh, man, this is, man, I hate this place. I mean, these dudes are cold killers crying. And I leave the cell like, damn, you know, it's not, it's not no tough guy shit up in there. I seen them, big tough guys shooting heroin, guys in there just, you know, catching hep C because of sharing needles, all this dirty, filthy stuff, man. I mean, predatorial stuff, guys taking advantage of people, getting involved in shit. It's a horrible place, man. And for you to think, yeah, you could come out of there, think you're normal. But I mean, I've had sleep. I had nights, you know, before where there was a time where I, you know, I'd wake up having nightmares that I'm back in prison. I don't know how I got there. I'm trying to talk to the warden and get me out. I don't have a release date. I mean, I had these nightmares for years until I went and spoke at a prison and was able to walk into prison on my own and leave on my own and get closure. But you got PTSD. It's, it's, it, it messes with your, your head, man. I mean, it, it's traumatic. I mean, hearing those doors, the keys clacking, that shit is terrifying. Going so into a prison for, for the first time to do a talk then, was that triggering? Yeah, you know what? It, 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 it was so different, man. I mean, to be on the other side with the guards while they're eating donuts, <laughs> bullshitting, you know, and you're not looked at as a criminal. You're looked at as a human being. You know what I mean? You're actually somebody of value. And to walk in there and to talk to these guys. I mean, dude, I had a conversation with a guy who's doing life. He shotgunned a woman, blew her, blew her away. Killed this lady, this innocent lady, man. And he's never done an interview. And I talked to this guy. 
And I'm looking like, damn, man. And they're, this is in Idaho. It's freezing cold. They're out there. And I leave. And I see the guys in there waiting for their lunchtime. And, and I leave. And I look at that place. I'm like, damn, man. I've never experienced going to that place on my own. Every time I was brought there, was in handcuffs. So it was a sense of, like, relief to know that I had control over that aspect to be able to walk into a prison and leave on my own and be treated differently and actually be uh, – you know, rewarded for doing something positive to share an experience with guys doing 30 years, doing life, you know, it, it was just, it was, a, it was a really, it was mind blowing, man. And it, it, it made, it actually, after that experience, my nightmares went away. Oh. And uh, I was going to ask one of the questions, but before we get to questions of the evening, I want to ask what you have next planned. Um, and next I wrote a script, um, me and a, me and a couple writing partners. So we're working on selling that kind of like a, a series that's like, kind of like, um, snowfall. So we're working on trying to sell that. I wrote my autobiography. So I'm looking at, um, publishing that soon. Um, you know, trying to get a book deal for that. I'm doing, you know, working on doing a lot more speaking engagements. Um, I got a clothing brand, um, I, I've, I've been working on a project with a car for a while. So I'm looking at coming out with my own um, kind of like um, specialty car design with Porsches. You know, I'm the big car guy. So um, I've been working on that. So I'm going to be coming out with my own special body kits for these cars. So I'm just getting into more entrepreneurial stuff and still, you know, talking to young people, talking to other um, businesses and stuff about just overcoming adversity, you know, choices and stuff like that. So more in the public speaking sector, and still pushing fresh out, but trying to get it onto more um, uh, universal platforms, so I'm not subject to the algorithms. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask next. What have been your biggest challenges on YouTube? So I imagine the algorithm is one of them. Yeah, you know, um, it's sad, but we did an interview with a guy who was called the pedophile hunter. And when we did that interview, I didn't realize how much this was before Epstein and all this stuff. I had no idea this stuff was as big as it was in Hollywood. And literally, our subscribers went from probably 20,000, 30,000 a month down to like 300. And it, it really hit our channel upside the head when we put this guy on who was talking about going after these pedophiles in different places and bringing them back to justice. And um, it really impacted our channel. And then also the whole... Um, Black Lives Matter thing, when that came out, we weren't really behind that. And we were using more logic. And, you know, there's a lot of politics involved. And literally, um, you know, there's all kind of people in Hollywood who were catching a lot of slack for not really getting behind something which has now been exposed. But um, that's been the hardest part, man, because, you know, as a black person, my partner's Mexican and us not playing victims, not really blaming you know, the system and defund the police and stuff like that. I don't want to defund the police. I want to be able to have a safe environment where if I need to, you know, my mom needs to call the cops or somebody, I don't want her to have to call, you know, some vigilante to come to the house to try to take down a predator. You know, I want there to be law and order. And so, you know, by us not getting behind a lot of the narratives, it's impacted us. But, um, you know, I see things changing. So, um, we, you know, we just keep putting out a good message, which is, you know, positivity, which is helping other people, you know, um, getting past the racial divide. There's a big thing in America with this black, white. I mean, they always show white cop, black guy. You know, it's, it's like that's the big narrative here. And 
you know, my, my stepdad's white. My, I have half white brothers and sisters and nieces. I mean, so I grew up just, I never grew up white, black, white, black. And that's the big thing here. And that's how they divide up our country. And that's how they're using all this other, these other narratives to keep people from uniting. And so, um, you know, I can't get behind that either. So that's one of the things that's been impacting us. But, you know, I just got to realize that there are people who believe my message and I see it. I have people who, you know, comment and, and have said things. So at the end of the day, um, you know, I'm not depending on YouTube to support myself because I know that my narrative is not what they're really trying to push. Great. Sorry. Out of all out of all your podcast guests, then which ones, which stories have interested you the most? Um, we interviewed a guy named Larry that was kidnapped by the cartel in Mexico. Um, that 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 interview did uh, over a million and uh, close to two million. But that guy, he was in Mexico living, um, making steroids, and he got arrested by the DEA there, and they left him to the federales, but the federales were also the cartel. And so they um, took a million dollars from him cash. They pulled his toenails out, torturing him, trying to get another, you know, trying to get his money. They, his, I guess his wife at the time, I heard that they uh, raped her and she escaped. And then he ended up escaping one night with another guy. And um, if he wouldn't escape, they probably would have killed him. And um, his story is pretty crazy, man. I mean, literally, it's a it's a Mark Wahlberg movie, and um, he's probably one of the most interesting guests we've had on. But we've had um, some other people. I had a, I just interviewed a female, a black female, ex uh, police officer who was shot three times on a domestic uh, violence call and uh, survived. And she told her story. She was shot by a black guy, you know. Um, so she's got a great story. But we've had some really interesting people. Um, a cop, ex-cop, ex-Marine who shot his wife, who did 30 years, you know, pretty crazy story, domestic violence situation. And, you know, interviewing all these people, man, you, you know, you learn a lot. And, you know, one of the benefits is that, you know, having been where I've been at, I'm able to ask questions and get answers that a lot of people couldn't get. You know, they open up to me and I feel that's, that's a gift I've been blessed with. And, um, you know, this is my way of giving back to the universe, man. I mean, I've done some negative things and I know I can't take those things back. So I just got to try to put out a great message to help other people. And you truly are doing wonderful things. So I've got to ask you what you're doing for Christmas. Um, just hanging out, me and the wife, you know, hanging out. We're in a new place in a nice area. It's very country-like, very peaceful. Um, I'm in Arizona now. I moved out of California two years ago and um, I love it out here. People are nice. Um, and, um, you know, we're just going to hang out and just do family stuff. Have you, Herc, ever interviewed any guests and it's gone to cause problems in your life? Yeah, yeah. I interviewed some people, man, who lied, who made up some shit and, you know, it, it, it tried to pull me into drama. And one thing is, you know, I don't I do not do the internet drama thing. You know, I'm not going to make a video calling somebody out. You know, I try, to I try to get people to tell me ahead of time what they did time for and you know, hopefully their their story checks out to the best of my ability. And that's why we put a disclaimer. But um, yeah, there's been situations where people have said stuff and then, you know, somebody got mad at me or said, hey, man, this guy right here, you know, you didn't, he said this or did that. 
And, you know, I try not to placate into that because that's what the internet wants. You know, and a lot of guys feed off of the beef, you know, back and forth, back and forth. But I don't have time to be looking over my shoulder. It's already when I go out in public, I'm always perceptive because I know there's a lot of haters. A lot of, you know, I've seen videos of guys like, oh, yeah, Big Herc. He said this. He was doing this. I said, look, man, I've been out now over 10 years and I've ran across people that see me in prison that I've never talked to that says, hey, man, I remember you. You always, you know, were in the library, you did what you did. I wasn't trying to be a superhero. I never pretended to be anything I'm not in prison. So if there was any real dirt on me, it would already came out. But um, I try to avoid engaging the trolls because I don't need the drama. You know, I feel that, you know, yeah, I can get more views. It could create more, you know, you know, uh, back and forth content, but it's not worth my time. And I'm such on a different level and the type of people I, I try to hang out with, it's not even about that. So I try to avoid a lot of that. But there have been people who have said some things that have come back to haunt them. And a lot of people, you know, it's, um, you know, I just let, I just let it, let it work itself out. What about if a guest says something that crosses the line over what the gangs might want them to say? Would you feel that you, you could be held responsible for publishing that? Well, I try not to have any really, um, I haven't been able to get anybody that's really super gang orientated on my channel because I want them to tell the truth, man. Tell these guys that, that it's not what it's cut out to be. And so, you know, for one, most of the guys can't come out and publicly talk, especially Mexican gang members. They can't talk. You don't notice there's hardly any Mexican gang members that have done any interviews on any channel. A real Mexican gang member? I know some guys that are from, you know, Southside dudes, and they'll talk to me privately, but they're like Big Herc, you know, they can't be seen with me publicly. I know guys, I know I know somebody in the Mongols. I know Hell's Angels. I know some real heavy hitters. Bob, I know some one percenters. Cool, we're cool. Never will go on camera. A real gangster never is going to go on camera because that's a different type of, it, it, they don't they don't talk their business. You never see a real biker one percenter telling about his bike club. You won't see it. So I know that those guys won't come on. But um, you know, as far as like street gang members, you know, most of the guys, you know, their their audience is based on the gang affiliation. So if you're a rapper and you're a blood or a crip, you don't want to say that. Hey, man, you know, you, you might want to make a different choice in your life because their revenue is based on that association because that's their audience. So um, I haven't been able to get a lot of these guys on camera, but behind closed doors, a lot of them say, Big Hurt, you're doing a great job. You know, I've seen, you know, tattooed face, um, you know, Mexican gang members, Armenian gang members say, hey, man, you're real. You, you tell it like it is because I'm not bragging. I'm not endorsing. I don't disrespect gangs. I just tell people, man, there's a lot you don't know about it. It's not a joke. It's not something you think, you know, hey, man, there's a lot of people who get killed. You see the ones who are alive, but think about all the guys who get killed, who think it's a game, get involved in something, owe money. You know, I've seen guys, man, I've heard of some torture stories, man. And I'm like, dude, you know, I, you know, I, I wish I told the dude before, man, you shouldn't have done that. And I've, there's some guys, man, it's crazy. You know, I'm not going to say it on here, but I know personally who have made the news. And these are guys who got involved in over their head. But, um, you know, I, I always tell people, man, that um, at the end of the day, you got to find your truth. And, um, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell a person that they should or shouldn't join a gang. I'm just telling them the reality of what I've experienced and the people on my show, you know, what they share is their truth. 
Have any of your guests gone on to become successful YouTubers themselves? Didn't Wes Watson come out for your channel? Yeah, I don't talk to Wes though. He came on my channel. He, you know, he um, it initially reached out to me multiple, multiple times to come on my channel. And um, and then after he got on the channel, he kind of ghosted us, didn't return our calls. Just, you know, kind of use our channel as a launching platform for himself. And I'm keeping 100. He'll know it. You know, I mean, he used to call me all the time. I mean, you know, and I never knew the guy from, you know, from from the you know the guy next door but um he blew up off our channel cali muscle he you know he was already doing his thing but his, you know doing his interview on our channel he, he he went on and you know really do really big things um but he already had a pretty decent internet uh platform badger he he blew up off of our channel he had a lot of followers um nate 916 started doing youtube he had a great following so you know and a lot of people you know, we we we've helped a lot of people who are nobodies. I didn't. I haven't interviewed celebrities. I haven't interviewed like Ice Cube or uh, Ice T or any of these really big guys. I've interviewed people who were re regular people and blew them up. So we gave a lot of people opportunity. And you know, typically my whole thing was, you know, hey, if if Sean, if I blew you up, then you know, you hey, Big Herc, let's collaborate over here. You're you know, you're supposed to share the wealth. You know, and that's how it works when you're a real one. You know, you I, I've never been somebody to just use people. That's not how I grew up, man. I, I always grew up being like loyalty and and, and honor. But, you know, it, it is what it is. I interviewed Badger when he blew up on your channel. And I'm wondering what happened to him. <laughs> Badger's in and out of shit, man. <laughs> Badger's oh. he's in and out of shit. He's actually he's he's doing all right now. I guess he he got himself out of the last little situation. And I talked to him. I was trying to get him to do a, a follow-up interview. But, um, you know, Badgers, he's very elusive. You got to catch him when you can. And I haven't been, <laughs> I haven't been able to get back on the show, but I've been trying. But um, he's a good dude, man. I've known Badger forever, over a decade. And, dude, out of everybody, he's always been loyal, straight-up dude. And um, I remember when we met and, uh, you know, when I initially asked him to come on my channel, he had a – you know, go through a few few resources to make sure it was okay to come on a black guy's channel. So Badger's a real one, and um, you know, shout out to Badger, man. But um, yeah, he still he always wishing me happy holidays. And a couple of years ago, I had him at my house for Christmas. You know, he didn't have nowhere to go, so he came home for Christmas. So yeah, Badger, he's he's a good dude. You got anything, Jen? No, no, I'm yeah covered here. Sorry, I've, I left right. about this guy Badger. I was like, I have no idea who that is. <laughs> Does it? Can well, you well. <laughs> the, the the other Badger was a guest on Herc's channel and the other two big guys um, from the prison genre were Josh 23 and 1 and After Prison Show yeah. This these yeah. guys started all this before anyone was doing any of it Herc was one of the first and have you collaborated with those guys with Josh or After Prison Show um, let's see 23 and 1 I think I, think I did a one time I did a, a Zoom with one of the guys, but I haven't really collaborated them. I haven't, there's, um, you know, been very few people. I've been trying to reach out to more people to do other collaborations. You know, I'm glad we had the opportunity to get together and collaborate. I've, um, I know people have been talking about for years for, hey, man, you should get, you know, Sean, and I would love to have you on my channel. Likewise, but I know like you being in England and me being over here trying to coordinate it, it's always been, you know, that's the hardest part. But, um, no, I haven't really collaborated with either one of those guys, but I'm, I'm trying to, like, you know, bring a lot of the other prison guys together. I think it's great to have a conversation just so people, you know, hear something different, man, because, you know, the mindset is that, 
you know, prison and people are fascinated with it, you know, so many movies and stuff, but at the end of the day, man, I wouldn't, I would, you know, I wouldn't want to tell a person to go. I hear people say, oh man, I should go to prison for a little while and get in shape. I'm like, dude, go to prison to get in shape to get your, how crazy is that, man? You're on the street. You have all this access. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> Well, Hurt, we love your spirit. We love your philosophy. You. We love how you're teaching the kids to not get gangster writers. And like you said, man, all these trolls, all this clickbait and all this bullshit, the way you've just stayed out of all that, that's so commendable. So if there's anything we can ever do to help you, you just please let us know. And we really appreciate you spending time with us this evening. Thank you, man. Yes, thank you. Appreciate it, man. I appreciate it. And like I said, um, I, you know, I look forward to getting you on fresh out, man, to, you know, tell your thing, man. Cause like I said, it's, it's all about giving back and, you know, we're here for a purpose and, you know, to put this message out, you know, who knows, some, you might, you might save a life, man. You know, somebody hearing you say something from your perspective, there's some kid who's sitting over in, you know, London somewhere. He's like, Oh man, you know, I, I'm going to stop, you know, maybe selling drugs and go get a job now because of what I heard from Sean, you know? So we're, we're changing lives, man. And that's, that's what it, that's what it all comes down to. Absolutely. That's what it's all about. So if you're watching this, my moderators are putting Herc's channel link in the chat. So please go over and check what he's done. I've been watching him for years. His videos are mind blowing. Like he said, kidnapped by the cartel. That's a good one to start with. But there's a whole slew of characters with amazing stories on Big Herc's channel. So please go over and support what he's doing. Thanks, man. Just let me know if, if you want me on yours anytime. Be delighted. Hey, John, I'll definitely be reaching out, man. I appreciate it. Nice meeting you, Jen.